Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. New drugs cost a lot to develop. It takes many, many highly educated and talented people working for decades to bring a new drug to market. And the vast majority don't make it, failing even in the last stages of clinical trials. So the pharmaceutical industry story goes, they must be rewarded with patent protections and the ability to charge high prices for life-saving medications. But what if that simple parable of risk-reward incentive is not the whole story? Our guest this morning, Preeti Krishtel, just won a MacArthur for her work trying to reform the way that the patent office deals with new medicines as a way to drive down the cost of drugs. We'll talk about her life work after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The patent system is so old that it was George Washington who signed the first patent. The idea of a patent is that we, as a society, want to reward people who invent useful things. If they come forward and declare that invention to the nation through the patent office, then they're given a short-term monopoly to commercialize that invention. But like so many things, the noble intent has gotten quite distorted by the powerful incentives that big corporations have, and people in the health justice movement have begun to change the narrative about how the system works or doesn't work. Our guest this morning is 2022 MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Preeti Krishtel, health justice lawyer and co-executive director of Initiatives for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, or IMAC, a nonprofit building a more just and equitable medicine system. Thank you so much for joining us, Preeti. Thanks for having me, Alexis. So let's start out with the call that you sort of won this MacArthur Fellowship. I know people who, once people get this award, they no longer call it a genius grant, but um, you get the call. What, what did that feel like for you? It was really incredible. I mean, for the MacArthur Foundation uh, to call me to tell us that this work that we've been doing for so long, you know, 20 years now, trying to ask people to pay attention to the patent system and suddenly to find out that the MacArthur Foundation was giving me the grant, it was really incredible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how you got into this life work. I mean, how did you come to health justice kind of as a, as a field of practice? Yeah, so I grew up, um, my father was a pharmaceutical industry scientist. I think that most of our dinner table conversations were about organic chemistry and about <laughs> <laughs> his quest to find cures and treatments for diseases. Um, so he really instilled in me and my sister a love for science and for advancing medicine. Um, so after law school, I you know, did a couple of jobs. I worked at a law firm. I went to the World Health Organization, and I began to realize that it was actually the human rights dimension of healthcare that was most interesting to me. So that's where it all started. And then you did some work kind of at the peak of mortality for HIV in India, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that work and how it played into your your life history? 
That's right. So after the World Health Organization, as a very young lawyer, I headed to India. I worked for a human rights organization called the Lawyers Collective, whose mission was to represent people living below the poverty line. And this was, as you said, at the peak of the HIV epidemic. And the drugs had come to market, but they weren't reaching most of the people worldwide who needed them. And I saw my clients pass away during, you know, the pendency of litigation. I saw children being buried. I would visit people in hospice. And all of those experiences had a really formative impact on me. I realized that we had to do something to close that gap between when drugs reach the market and when they're actually reaching people. Yeah. Because I think in the U.S., our timeline for HIV AIDS is, is kind of different, right? I mean, the drugs come to market fairly uh, early and the access is not complete, but at least a lot of people are taking those drugs even in the 1990s. But you're talking about like a full decade later when access is still really low. That's right. It took years for the drugs to reach people who needed them across the global south. And during that time, millions of people died. And I think people were really moved at that time by the injustice. And the global public said never again. And then COVID happened and it started to happen all over again. We saw the stark inequities between when, you know, testing, treatment, vaccines were being rolled out here and when they actually reach people in the global south. Hmm. But does your work kind of focus exclusively on the global south, or is it about access to medicine for kind of all people? It's for all people. So we spent over a decade, about 15 years, working in lower-income countries trying to close this gap. And ultimately, in 2016, we actually ended up coming to the United States because prescription drug costs, as you know, are rising here rapidly. We're on track to reach, we're at about $400 billion in prescription drug spend today. That's predicted to reach about a trillion dollars by 2030. And so we were hearing the stories here that people were dropping out of school, people were rationing their medicines, many people were also burying family members here. So we had increased demand to actually come work in the U.S. So today we're primarily focused in the United States on reforming the system for medicines writ large, but particularly the patent system. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me, this is sort of like the wrinkle in your work that I think has has drawn so much attention because it feels like a layer deeper into the story about why drug prices are so high. That's right. I think that, you know, we talk a lot about how drug prices are so high. You know, everybody complains about it. But where does the pharmaceutical industry get the power to set those prices so high? And that's really from patents. That's the primary asset of the industry. And so, you know, I grew up in a household where we really revered patents. Patents were so important, you know, to my father as a scientist. Every time he made progress in science, you know, that patent was a symbol of, okay, we're getting somewhere. We're, we're getting somewhere to actually help people. And by the time, you know, I became a lawyer and my organization, I co-founded it with Dahir Amin, who's an intellectual property lawyer, um, when we started investigating the patents around some of these medications, we started to realize that the patent system was actually being abused and that patents were being leveraged and manipulated for reasons that weren't part of that original intention about promoting progress. How were they being leveraged and manipulated? 
So our most recent study here in the United States, we just put it out a couple months ago, we found on the top 10 drugs, meaning the top selling drugs in the United States, there are about 74 patents being granted on each of those drugs. And when you look at the worst offenders, like let's take the arthritis drug that's actually the best-selling drug in the country, Humira. The company who filed the patents on that, AbbVie, they filed over 300 patents on that one drug, right? It's supposed to be one invention, one patent, but they have filed over 300. They've gotten over 160 patents on the one drug alone. And so what that means in real and practical terms for Americans is that while the European market, you know, Europeans are getting competition on the market by 2018, we still don't have competition on the market and we're not going to have it until 2023. And we're spending billions of dollars in the meantime. And there are real trade-offs and choices that Americans are having to make. It's hitting them in their pocketbooks. It's harming their health. And I think that's why people are calling out for change. So one thing I don't totally understand about this is why can't generic drug makers just go back to the original formulation of that drug and make that drug as it was then, not sort of the new formulations that are presumably covered by these newer patents? Yeah, it's a great question, and it depends on what type of product you're talking about. But I think the simple answer to that question is it's a combination of things, including the thickets of patents that the companies are building around the product. It has to do with the regulatory requirements around the drug and when you can get approval to enter the market. And it has to do with um, other gaming that happens with how the industry basically switches out products, you know, a practice known as product topping down the line with healthcare providers. So it's a whole toolbox of tricks that's being used, but it's not easy to enter on the older product. So as you're describing this like broader system or this kind of the, the in practice version of how drugs get from, you know, a lab into people's actual bodies to, to help them. You mm-hmm. started calling this, right, the medicine system. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see that network of actors? Yeah, when I talk about the medicine system, I'm talking about the system from drug development. So we're talking about investment and R&D through the patenting process, through clinical trials, and then you have the people who make the drugs, the people who buy the drugs, and ultimately healthcare providers getting those drugs in the hands of patients. That whole system, I started calling it the medicine system because it's the lesser known but mostly overlooked adjacent system to the healthcare system. And we spend a lot of time in America talking about the healthcare system, and I don't think there's enough scrutiny on the medicine system. Hmm. What uh, of our like sort of healthcare spend, like how much of it roughly goes to this sort of medicine system? So it's a good question. I would say that today, from what I know, you know, like if you look at the breakdown between branded and generic medicines, branded drugs actually make up just 8% of total prescription drug costs versus 92% for generics. But that's for prescriptions. When you look at the cost, branded drugs actually make up 79% of total spend in the U.S., Mm. So it's really interesting, and we're seeing, right, like people are hearing that as newer treatments are getting approved and coming to market, the prices are being set in really exorbitant ways. So there's a lot of concern now that 
the system is actually going to implode? And how are we going to create a better balance between incentivizing people to invent drugs and bring them to market and then actually saying, well, at some point, we actually need competition. We need a competitive market. We just don't have that in America today. Well, and when you talk about this bringing new drugs to market, I mean, most of these patents are not for that, right? I mean, they're for things that are actually quite old technologies, but kind of grafted onto a new drug, right? That's right. Our organization's research has shown that actually it's about, on these 10 top-selling drugs, on average, 66% of those patent applications that are filed, they happen after marketing approval, right? So you get a patent pretty early on when you're doing your research. That's how it should work. Mm -hmm. Then it takes years to go through clinical trials. You get your marketing approval. And at some point after that, you know, the term in the finance world is there's a patent cliff. At that point, you know, your revenues cease as the branded company. Competition enters the market. And usually when you get about five competitors, the price comes down significantly. And we're just not seeing that phenomenon happening in real time anymore. The patent cliff, as they call it, it gets pushed out farther and farther and farther. So interesting. We are talking with Preeti Krishtel. She is 2022 MacArthur Grant slash genius winner. Um, We'd love to hear from you. How have you been impacted by really high prices for medicines? Have you had to make different choices because the drugs that you need to take for your health are so high? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Maybe you're a patent holder for a medicine like Preeti's dad. What was the process like for you? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the inequity in our health system with 2022 MacArthur Grant recipient Preeti Krishtel, who's a health justice lawyer. Of course, she lives here in the Bay Area. She's also the co-executive director of Initiatives for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, or IMAC, which is a nonprofit building a more just and equitable medicine system. Uh, Again, we'd love to hear from you. 
Have you been personally impacted by the high prices for medicines, particularly these sort of like brand name blockbuster drugs that drive a lot of the industry? Or maybe you yourself have been involved on the other side, creating uh, new medicines and and patenting them. We'd love to hear about how that process has gone for you. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.com. Uh, Preachy, I wanted you to help our listeners understand kind of the, the patent system 101, because I think, you know, that I, I gave it at the top of the show, this kind of uh, line drawing of how the patent system is supposed mm-hmm. to work. But there's some real differences between that and how it has has ended up working, as we've been kind of talking about. Can you kind of give us the, the breakdown of the patent system as, as you see it? Sure. So. A patent is supposed to be a time-limited monopoly that's given to motivate people to invent. But what's happened is that over the last 40 years, due to some laws that were uh, brought into effect in the early 1980s, uh, including the Hatch-Waxman Act, those laws have basically been gamed. Today, we're seeing the rise of what we call patent thickets. Patent thickets include patents that have been granted, patents that are applied for, and because the biggest drug makers are filing more and more patents and securing hundreds of product, uh, sorry, patents on the best-selling products, it actually deters and blocks competition, which was not the intention of the patent system. Mm-hmm. And so what that means in practical terms, going back again to the arthritis drug, for example, that is the best-selling drug in the country, Humira, After the original set of patents expired in 2016, we should have seen competition in the marketplace the way that they're actually seeing in Europe right now. But we still don't have competition today. And AbbVie, the company in question, has made $100 billion, or two-thirds of their sales in the U.S. on this drug, has come after those original patents expired. So it's really important to understand When we are trying to draw attention to this problem, we are not talking about patents. We are talking about patent abuse. Mm. So why are so many patents being filed? I mean, if you look at uh, a chart of patents filed through time, it's basically like exponential growth. But I think most people would agree that we're not experiencing, you know, exponential change in science per se or the number of medicines that have come on the market or you know, uh, improvements in our health. Um, So is that just purely that there's corporate incentives to file massive numbers of, of patent applications rather than, you know, one per drug? Absolutely. You know, it should stand to reason that as the base of knowledge grows, you know, for Americans, for the world, that actually you would hand out less patents because it's harder to attain a certain milestone of invention. But actually what we're seeing because of these laws that I mentioned from the 1980s, what we're actually seeing is a set of laws, um, one of which the Hatch-Waxman Act was designed to actually promote competition. Mm. And the biggest companies, you know, they figured out how to game it. And they did game it. And so now we see patents being handed out for minor tweaks and Um, combinations, you know, putting two drugs into one pill. We're just seeing a rise in that kind of patenting. And I think what we're trying to say is, hold on a second. 
let's shine a light on that. Let's understand its implications for society and see, is this actually incentivizing what we want in terms of progress? Yeah. It sounds to me also like we do have other ways of doing things. Like if we look at Europe, right? I mean, is Europe like for you a a model for how the U.S. should work or does their system also have its own set of flaws? It has its own set of challenges, but I think looking at the U.S. and the EU in comparison can provide a really good baseline. Like on some of the um, biggest drugs in the country, again, if you compare the number of patents that have been filed or granted here versus over there, it's about four times as many patents are granted here on the same drug product. So I think it is illustrative. I think as we look to find solutions, though, we really need to look inwards because the U.S. healthcare system is different. The patent system is different. We really need to think about what's the right design for us. Mm-hmm. And I always like to say this because I think it's important. Um, I do think this is about incentives and what the market is incentivizing of our biggest drug makers. And I think that we can redirect that. I don't think there's any one bad actor or set of actors. I think this is a systemic problem that's going to require systemic solutions. But they don't have to take advantage of the system in that way, do they? (laughs) Well, they are responsible to their shareholders and their investors. So I would say, well, it's debatable. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's bring in our first caller, uh, Mike in Portland, Maine. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah. You know, I follow this patent thing quite regularly, and I always wait for drugs to come off patent for them to go become generic typically before I can get them because they're just unaffordable when they're on patent. But additionally, I find it doesn't change that much when they come off patent. Mm-hmm. Pharmacy benefit managers have a tremendous amount to do with the cost of drugs. Uh, the particular pharmacies, uh, I won't name any names unless you want me to, <laughs> that discount discount drugs from the top down, from the retail price down, as opposed to other pharmacies that will give you their cost up. Um, and for an example, uh, one particular drug, and, and there's a long patent history with this that I'm sure you could speak of, Restasis, it's an eye drop. Um, the price of it hasn't changed very much since it's come off patent. It's mm. still incredibly expensive and unaffordable. It's not just a patent thing that's costing uh, it's causing us the drugs, and the fact that Medicare, uh, which I happen to be on, uh, can't negotiate their prices based on congressional mandates, uh, changes the whole thing. It all has to do with pharmacy benefit management. Oh, man. Mike, what uh, interesting points as we go kind of deeper and deeper into the medicine system, right? I mean, that seems like this is, Mike is kind of highlighting the other players in this kind of network, right? Absolutely. And so when you think about the medicine system, like I was saying, it starts really upstream with what choices are we making around investment in R&D? You know, where are we choosing to progress our science and what for what diseases? Then you have the patent system, which gives pharmaceutical companies the power to set prices and to decide who enters the market and when. And then more downstream, you have different drug manufacturers and procurement and all of the other pieces. So I think that's really what Mike is speaking to is like when we talk about purchasing drugs, like Medicare is a major purchaser, um, what do we do about whether we have the power to negotiate those prices? And I think recently we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act come in. That's going to give the government one set of tools now finally on a select set of drugs for seniors to start to negotiate those prices. Absolutely, there are other actors like PBMs. There are many actors in America. And I have to say, 
after working around the world over the last 20 years, this is something that really distinguishes and differentiates our country is how many players, how many middlemen we have mm. in terms of adding to the health care costs and adding to the cost of medication. So interesting. Um, let's bring in Brandon in Foster City with a different perspective. Welcome, Brandon. Hey, guys. Thank you, Alexis, so much for taking my call. And just to support what was just said, uh, most people do not know that the big drug manufacturers, they don't want to do distribution. So really, the main culprits that was just alluded to is McKesson um, and Amerisource Bergen and Cardinal. Those are the, all they do is distribution and add a huge markup. And, and why the government can't take over their role is I would like to ask that. But my original calling question was, in terms of dissuading excessive patent filing, currently there is – I took the patent bar. I didn't pass it, but I know some stuff. <laughs> and there is a small filing entity status, and you could, but there's only three tiers of filing uh, for the filing fee. What the fee they should do is do a tiered system where every company, if you're a high-volume filer, you should, your fee, filing fee should be calculated by pricing them the prior fee they paid plus an increasing amount. So, in, for example uh-huh. – their, their filing fee plus one, and they and then if they file again, it'd be their filing fee plus another, uh, you know, $150, and their filing fee plus 175 and just every time they file, it'd be their filing, prior filing fee plus an increasing escalating amount. And I think, and of course, just to wrap up real quick, thank you for the time, but they, they should, of course, they're going to say it's going to stifle innovation, blah, blah, blah. All you do is just say, give everybody a flat free uh, 10 per year, you know, some reasonable amount, five per year, you know, but yeah. after that, have the have the big entity status yeah. kick in. I think that'd be a way to apply means testing. I'd like to hear what you guys think. Thank you. Well, and, and you're also used to work in the industry as well, right? So this is sort of coming from an inside I worked, perspective. I worked for a large uh, biotech, I won't name, that starts with G, everybody's heard of, <laughs> and I'll tell you, like, they sell truckloads of the medications to uh, Amerisource, Cardinal, and you could look up how much each of those publicly traded companies, uh, all they handle is distribution. There's no innovation at all. All they do is, I mean, I don't understand why we can't have, uh, if America could put a man on the moon over 60 years ago and we have fusion reactors as a state, why we can't just have the government, a not-for-profit entity, run the distribution. I mean, Amazon mm-hmm. is doing it. We're going to have drones making deliveries. There's no reason to have Look at the market cap of Amerisource or Cardinal or, or um, um, McKesson. I mean, these guys, a bunch of guys in suits just sitting around uh, figuring out how to pay their lobbyists so that they could stay in the loop. Uh, same for the insurance companies, frankly. But I deviate. So, so yeah. Brandon, thank you so much for that call. Yeah, Preeti, there's a lot to respond to. Uh, no, I call. love it. I feel like what we're hearing from caller after caller is that healthcare in this country is a racket. <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate the perspective. Um, I also really appreciate Brandon's perspective as a patent lawyer. I think that... Um, Fee structures are something that a lot of people are talking about um, in different parts of the patent system. I would say in this case, I think raising the fee for filing more patents for the biggest drug makers, I mean, it's not even a rounding error. So I don't really think that that's going to be a deterrent. I think that we need Congress looking at this problem more closely, unpacking the data on what's actually happening after the first set of patents expires. Really, you know, we've just put out a database, actually. It's called the Drug Patent Book. It's on our website, and it's 
got, at least on these top 10 selling drugs, it's got every patent application and granted patent that we were able to find. And by unpacking the data, hopefully policymakers are going to be able to, um, you know, devise solutions that actually address some of the legal gamesmanship that's going on. Yeah. Uh, got some listener comments coming in for 2022. MacArthur Grant recipient Preeti Christel, health justice lawyer here. Uh, we're talking this morning. She's a Bay Area resident. Um, Barry writes in to say, why is insulin so expensive if it's, quote unquote, off patent? You mentioned Humira as an example. Is this because it's a biologic and not a small molecule, which maybe you could explain the difference between those things? And is the same patent extension and extending the patent cliff strategy the same for small molecule drugs? Okay, there's a lot in there. A lot here, let me yeah. let me let's start. Let, yeah, let's start with sort of this new. <laughs> let's start with the old class of drugs, the small molecules. Yeah, and we still have. We call them an old class of drugs, small molecule drugs that are simpler in theory to make. Um, but you'll look if you again look at the top, you know, selling drugs in the country. Some of them, like the cancer drug Revlimid, are still up there as top sellers. You know in our country today. So for example, Revlimid, the drug I'm talking about, it first got marketing approval in 2005, you know, and they have filed over 200 patent applications on this drug. They've been granted over 100. um, And thanks to some very strategic patent filings, you know, that's probably good business lawyering over there, they've been able to extend their monopoly period for years longer than they should have had it. Like we should have had a free competitive marketplace by now, and we just don't. So for small molecules, it's still a problem. I think the bigger problem now is the biologics, the more complex drugs to make at this point. Um, And that's where, you know, that's covered by a totally different set of laws and rules. Um, And we're seeing, you know, I've been talking about drugs like Humira. We have many other biologics that are the top selling drugs in the country. And I think that's where we need um, new investigation by Congress to really start to unpack what are the patents in these portfolios and why are the numbers growing by pretty significant numbers. The question about insulin is interesting. You know, a few years ago, we put out a report on Lantus, which is an insulin product. We showed that that drug was also being overpatented, overpriced. The monopolies were being pushed out. But what we have today, your caller is exactly right. Um, we have a situation where we actually just have a cartel on the pricing. And this goes back to a more central point about this conversation and the pharmaceuticals market, which is that we do not have a competitive market in America today, and it's a serious problem. Hmm. Tell me more about that. I mean, do you see this work as part of just sort of more broadly the kind of anti-monopoly movement that's kind of afoot? Yeah, absolutely. So monopolies are affecting Americans across a number of verticals, right? There's some pushback against big tech. There's pushback against big pharma. There's pushback against everything from the airlines to the um, cable companies. And what we're hearing over and over again, and this is true across the political spectrum in all the polling, is that Americans are tired of it. They want choice as consumers, and we've lost the ability to have that in nearly every dimension of our lives. I think that healthcare writ large um, and medication in particular falls within that bucket. And I think that there's a growing movement. We've seen changes at the FTC this year. Um, What we're trying to do by bringing attention to the Patent and Trademark Office is to say, look, the FTC 
is an agency that's really there to crack down on anti-competitive behavior, antitrust behavior after the fact. But we also need in some of these sectors to be looking at how do these monopolies come into play in the first place? Yeah. So can I, but we're going to talk more solutions. We're going to talk more individual stories of, of people uh, in, the, in the last segment of the show. But where is the U.S. Patent Office on this? Obviously, they know. I know that you've even been out there. They know that you're doing this activism uh, and, and this work and this research on their work. Um, what do they say to you when you present your findings? You know, I think there's been growing scrutiny on the U.S. Patent Office. We've certainly been trying to bring awareness to the importance of this agency. You know, these this is the agency that's actually handing out the patents that determine when drugs can come to market or not. There's been growing support. The New York Times um, editorial board in April endorsed some of our reforms for patent reform. Um, and a bipartisan group of senators, actually, uh, on both sides of the aisle, came together recently to write a letter to Patent Office Director Kathy Vidal. And they said to her that the Patent Act envisions that a, there should be a single patent per invention, not a large portfolio based on one creation. So I think there is definitely momentum right now, and there's a lot of heat being brought on the Patent Office, uh, and they're starting to respond to that by taking some measures. So, for example, they're starting to partner with the U.S. FDA. The FDA approves drugs to see whether they're safe or efficacious. So they're partnering with the FDA to say, why are drugs being delayed to market? And we want to make sure that patents don't have any part in delaying or blocking competition. And that comes as a result of President Biden's executive order on competition, where he explicitly gave a mandate to the patent office and the FDA that they need to partner to figure out why competition is being blocked. Nabil writes, uh, listener Nabil writes, from my own work as a scientist and trying to file patents in the U.S., you notice that the EU does a much better job in the due diligence required to prosecute and grant a patent. They truly look for prior art, which is sort of a term of art, uh, and limit the scope of patents granted versus the blank check approach at the U.S. Patents Office. We are talking about inequity in our health system with 2022 MacArthur Grant recipient Preeti Christel, Bay Area resident, health justice lawyer, and co-executive director of Initiatives for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, or IMAC, which is a nonprofit building a more just and equitable medicine system. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for some solutions and stories right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with 2022 MacArthur Grant recipient Preeti Christel, the Bay Area's own. She's a health justice lawyer. And let's go back to the phones. Uh, Elena and Clayton, welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I really don't have a question. I have a story. Um, about 20 years ago, my son, who was a teenager at the time, was receiving cancer treatment and had really uh, severe vomiting and nausea. And he was given what was then not a generic medication, a fairly new at the time medication called Zofran uh, to help with the nausea, which it did. Um, uh, Although he still was, you know, taking the drug, vomiting it up many, many times so that we had to refill his prescription many, many, many times. And finally, we went back to the pharmacy to refill his prescription, and we were told that we had exceeded our pharmaceutical benefit for the year. Mm -hmm. I I was not even aware that there was a pharmaceutical benefit, and that benefit is many, many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars for the plan that we were on. And that will tell you at that time, how expensive that drug was, and if we had not been privileged enough to have really good health insurance, I absolutely don't know what we would have done. Mm, um, yeah. So that's that's the story. Yeah, Elena. Wow. I mean, that sounds like that was a very very hard time. Thank you for for going back into it and and sharing that that story with us. You know, I mean, Pretty, you must hear things like this. People who have had, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars we're talking just to kind of keep your your child feeling as, as best as they could. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, most of my work over the last 20 years has actually been as a patient advocate or working in the movement with um, advocates representing patients and clients, especially those who live close to or below the poverty line. So this is a common story, although my heart hurts just mm, um, listening to her right now. I think this is sort of the universality of what we're facing right now as a country and globally is that we have all been caregivers. We've all been a patient. We've all had to watch somebody struggle who was sick. And I think that when we think about solutions, part of what we're thinking about as an organization is how do we make sure there's room for everyone at the table to talk about these issues, even with the callers you've just had call in Alexis, it's so complex the way our system is organized. And so I think a big part of what we're thinking about is how do we keep creating a bigger table, a more inclusive table for policy development? Because the way it happens right now is so top down in our country and is often, at least in the case of the patent system, really detached from the human consequences of its you know, actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go to somebody else who's working in the trenches. Laya in Sunnyvale. Welcome. Good morning, and it's Leah. Oh, Leah. Sorry um, about that, Leah. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) To give you some background, I'm a nurse, and I also have worked in the field of clinical research and drug safety and pharmacovigilance for over 20 years. But I'm also a consumer of medications, and it's not just the patents that's at issue. For instance, I take a generic medication for excessive daytime sleepiness. It's been a generic for many years, 
And, um, and the pharmacy benefit risk management has determined that this medication, which has been around for decades, mm-hmm. is non-formulary. So not only did I have to jump through the hoops of having to get prior authorization for this medication, but I pay about $60 a month for a 30-day supply. This is something I have to take every day to be functional. And so that comes to like $2.38, I think, a day per pill. Okay, this is a generic. It costs them maybe like 25 cents to manufacture, package, and ship. And yet I am billed, you know, because my, uh, the, the, the insurance company's pharmacy benefit manager has determined that this being non-formulary, that I have to pay, you know, the maximum price for it. And then the, the price before I get, you know, the, the thing is like somewhere ridiculous, like $400 or something like that for a 30-day supply. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, the American system is ridiculously complicated because everybody has to take their cut. Mm-hmm. And the European system is better because it's centralized approval, it's centralized distribution, and it's centralized pricing. But because we have this myth that we, you know, that, you know, um, the market will, you know, deliver mm-hmm. the lowest prices if demand is high, that's mm-hmm. not really the case. The market will take whatever it can take. That's right. That's yeah. right. Leah, thank you so much. And I think powerful. You, yeah, mm-hmm. your your points too. I mean, you gotta know what non formulary and PBM and all these even just getting the, the <laughs> and, lingo and, you down. You know, and I'm a healthcare provider and yeah. have to go through that and, yeah. and just yank my hair out and say, I know this pill only costs you know, like 25 cents to get to you as a pharmacy, and yet you're passing on that cost to me at a ridiculous amount for a generic. So making a drug generic does not guarantee a low cost. Yeah. Thanks again, Leah, for that. Pete, do you want to respond to anything else before I've got some great comments for you as well? Oh, yeah. No, that just, that was really powerful. I think she's absolutely right. You know, we have this incredibly complex system, and there's people who are saying exactly what Leah's saying, which is that the government needs to be centralizing this. There's a woman um, I came across recently. Her name's Dana Brown. She's talking about centralizing. Why can't the government take over a certain amount of drug production, drug manufacturing? It's a really interesting idea. I haven't looked into it yet, but I think it's it's something definitely worth exploring because whatever's happening right now across the system for medicines is not working. Yeah. So Randy's got a question about sort of the implementation of the solutions that we're, we're talking about here. Randy writes, how would you distinguish sort of genuine new discoveries versus this sort of uh, patent thicket line? For example, a company could genuinely make a new discovery for a new use of a drug, and that'd be a genuine discovery. So how, how would you go about sort of reformulating the way that we would distinguish between sort of, okay, we're going to give you a patent for this because it's a big discovery and it helps people's health and okay, this is just part of your corporate strategy to, you know, extend the the amount of money you can make on this monopoly. <laughs> Randy's asking the million dollar question right now. It's exactly the right question. Um, so, what our research has been able to show through our drug patent book database is the scope of the problem in this next phase where we try to define solutions, particularly on how exactly do you raise the bar? That's where our participatory system comes in. It's called PCM, the Participatory Change-Making System. And basically what we're doing is we're bringing people together who understand how this works from different lenses. So you could talk about a smaller biotech company or a lawyer for a major drug maker. 
Um, you could have a patent judge or the person who reviews patents at the patent office or an investor or a patient. What we've started doing over the last two years is convening folks to say, how would you look at this specific problem of which patents you would want to grant? And we invite all of them to look at the data and start to make recommendations so that we are making sure exactly what he's saying, that we are rewarding genuine invention. And we're making sure, though, that we're also figuring out the right ways to capture which of this is just gaming. Um, we've got uh, one comment, and then we're going to go to uh, another call here. Uh, one listener wrote in to say, I helped a nonprofit startup several years ago, which was a vanity press project for Big Pharma. In the end, I came <laughs> to realize it was a consortium of Big Pharma to establish patent provenance as patents expired. Big Pharma goes to great lengths to protect its profitability. I quit when I figured it out, even though I made double what I had before. Uh, <laughs> let's bring in uh, Hannah in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Um, yeah, I um, so I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease um, several years ago, and I've been on both Humira and Stellara um, over the years. And so for me, um, my insurance, I have to pay $245 um, out of pocket every eight weeks for my medication and then submit for reimbursement to the manufacturer um, because they say that, you know, no one should be paying more than $5 for the medication. So I have to wait for that reimbursement check. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because I'm lucky to have commercial insurance. Um, and it's been made kind of clear that, you know, if I were on, um, you know, government um, like Medi-Cal or Medicare or didn't have commercial insurance, you know, I'd be um, kind of on the hook for that full amount, which is, you know, thousands of dollars and not given, you know, that, that $5 out of pocket um, you know, guarantee. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Preeti, this is like the exact situation where it's like the, it either the money either comes from Hana or it it makes money for Abvi, right? I mean, this is like that. This is the the tension right here. Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think as a society, we decided that there was this trade off when a drug is new, right? Like Humira, for example, has been on the market since two thousand two. That is a long time to be at the market, and there hasn't been a way that the government says, okay, enough is enough. Like, you've gotten your just rewards. It was supposed to be 20 years from the time of the first patent. That time should have been in 2016, and yet Avias figured out how to game the system, and many, many, many other drug makers have followed suit. So what we're trying to say now is, hey, pay attention. This is happening, and it's not sustainable. The system is going to implode, and it's driving inequality. People are reporting that they can't fill their prescriptions. They are rationing their prescriptions. Um, people are reporting that they're losing their loved ones because they couldn't afford their medication. So at some point, the government has to step in and say, hey, this is anti-competitive, and it's anti-patient. Yeah. Uh, let's go to John in Oakland. Welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm going to give my background I'll go as quick as I can. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry in 40 years, um, 20 of it in clinical trials and 20 of it in manufacturing. Um, and as your speaker knows, the cost, the high cost of drugs is due to the fact that the majority of them, vast majority, never make it to market. And they, they lose money. Five years ago when I retired, the cost was over a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, from research all the way to, to market. Um, so it's, it's, it's expensive, and, that's, and I've worked at the FDA, and I've trained FDA reviewers. So I'm, I'm familiar with what the cost of that is. On the consumer side, again, I reserved, retired five years ago, and uh, I've had a, a drug that my urologist gave me for, uh, say, overactive bladder, 
it's uh, $400 a month, and I'm just, I won't take it. It's too much. Um, so there's both sides, and I'll just live, live, live with the, uh, the issues of going to the bathroom a lot. You know, John, um, has so it, I wonder if your post-retirement experience has led you to think again or think differently about your time in the industry or not. No. I mean, I worked 40 years as a long time in the industry, in clinical trials, yeah. Um, as well as in um, in manufacturing, so I know what the cost of it is, yeah. um, and it just costs a lot of money. As far as this thing with the, the pharmaceutical, the uh, patent office and uh, gaming the system there, I don't know about that. And that's yeah. probably I'd say not right. I mean, I've worked with in, the, in Europe also with in, in the pharmaceutical industry, yeah. um, and I'm just you know the drug is too much. I can live without it, and I then that's. Uh, my lifestyle may not be that great because I'm living without it, but that's, I'll say, just too bad hmm. on my part. Hmm. Huh. And I'm not going to die because I'm not taking it. Yeah. All right, John. Well, thank you for uh, for sharing your experience and, and your time working to make people healthier. I mean, Preeti, these are, these are complex trips, and I want to stack uh, one of the questions that came in. Uh, a, a listener writes in to say, I've heard that America develops more pharmaceuticals than other countries, and that is one reason why our medical care costs are so high. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Who's paying for that drug development? What role does the government play, et cetera? Like, it's really a question of does the, the basic story of it costs a lot to develop and get these drugs through trial and into manufacturing, does it hold up that, that the, that's why the price of drugs is so high or not? The, the, just the basic idea we have about the deal we've made uh, with drug companies and our patent system and our health system. I think fundamentally we have a lack of transparency of how much R&D really costs because we don't require the pharmaceutical industry to be transparent about that. Undoubtedly, it costs money. Nobody's going to dispute that. But I think what is often overlooked is the amount of taxpayer dollars that goes into fund research. A great example of that is Moderna, actually. Moderna received nearly 100% government funding to develop its vaccine. And the government, you know, through Operation Warp Speed, did not include any strings attached to that funding. You know, by the end of this year, Moderna is going to have made $40 billion on the vaccine by applying its technology platform to other drugs or, sorry, other um, medical products. It's going to raise, you know, it's going to make about $100 billion. And the taxpayers don't get a return on that investment. Now, there's not an investor that would take that deal, but somehow we're okay with the government spending our money um, to do research that somebody else makes money off of. And that is true across the board, not just for COVID. So I think we really need to start asking why aren't there strings attached to the public funding that go out to the industry to develop these drugs and figure out how we can get a return on our investment. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in Lewis in Saratoga. Welcome, Lewis. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I really wanted to comment on kind of on this topic with looking at the vaccines and how we really got to see how the government kind of stepped in and was able to, it was an easy process. I went in and I got the first round of the COVID vaccine. It was a biologic, very expensive, and it you know cost a lot of taxpayer money to develop. Um, but we really got to see the power of the federal government stepping in and really helping bring the cost down and make it accessible. And why are there more, why aren't there 
more drugs that they do that for. I mean, we're, you know, you start, you're starting to hear about insulin in California, but I really wonder, like, mm-hmm. why don't we see that, mm-hmm. that kind of program more? Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you so much for that, Lewis. It's a great question. It's a great question, and we see that it's for a finite period of time, too, right? I'm reading in the newspaper this week that Pfizer is significantly raising um, uh, the price of its COVID-19 vaccine now. So we had it, you know, we had it good for a while, uh, and we should definitely be grateful to the government for that intervention. Yeah. So uh, as we get ready to leave people, what is the sort of one or two top reforms to the system that you would like to see go into place that people can kind of take with them um, as they think about, you know, the future of medicines? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we need to increase public participation and pub- and scrutiny of the system itself. I think for too long, the system has been uh, serving the biggest universities and drug makers as its primary customer. And we need to sort of take it back to say, actually, there needs to be a balance. The patent system needs to be accountable to the public. Second is what I just mentioned, that we do need um, We do need strings attached to taxpayer-funded inventions. And third, what we've been talking about a lot today is we need to raise the bar of what actually is worthy of a patent. And like your caller highlighted, we actually need to figure out how to make that a very surgical process. We're not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're not talking about bringing a sledgehammer down on the patent system. We're saying we need to understand where these abuses are happening, and we need to now solve for that in a very smart way before our healthcare costs really go out of the roof worse than they are. Yeah. Do you know what you're going to do with the MacArthur money yet? <laughs> I do not. I'm still <laughs> absorbing this huge surprise. Yeah. No no plans? <laughs> None at all? <laughs> well, my mom has been asking me, actually, to take her to Europe for many, many, many years. So I'll probably start there. Start there. Yeah. <laughs> we have been talking about inequity in our health system, in particular around the high cost of medicines with 2022 MacArthur Grant recipient and Bay Area resident Preeti Krishtel. She's a health justice lawyer and co-executive director of Initiatives for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, or IMAC, which is a nonprofit building a more just and equitable medicine system. I know you got to be busy after winning this award, so thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.